like you to take your Bibles now and turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. We're in verse 1 down through verse 9 now. We continue in this understanding, this teaching of what the gospel of Jesus Christ entails. And so as we're turning there, we want to be particularly attentive to the whole idea of the gospel, where it shows up in these verses, and also how it relates to something which you and I are going to see again and again in this third chapter. It's the idea of the promise that God has in his plan established a tremendous promise from the earliest times onward with regard to the gospel and sending Jesus Christ into this world to die for our sins. And the gospel shows up in some very unique places. For example, let's look at chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, down through verse 9, where we find these words, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law? Or because you believe what you heard? Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham... In the scriptures, the scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. Did you see that? Don't overlook that phrase. That God announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. In other words, the gospel is not contained in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The gospel is found in all 66 books of the Bible. So in light of that, he says in verse 9, So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So we're going to be looking at these verses and trying to understand how the gospel relates to our lives. And forgive me if my voice sounds a little bit different today. I sound like a jazz-type DJ at 12 o'clock at night. I want you to know. But I won't quit my day job. (laughs) Let's look to God in prayer. Our Father, we come before you and we thank you for who you are. You're the holy, righteous God who gave his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. And we give you all the praise and all the glory for that fact. The reality is everything revolves around Jesus. All of life. And Jesus is the core of the gospel itself. So we want to be able to understand this core thoroughly, completely, practically. Because our objective is to build a bridge between the days in which Paul wrote in 48, 49 A.D. to where we live in 2013. 
Now you know the needs here. In each of these services, you know what keeps us awake at night. You know the struggles that we face. The highs and the lows, Father of life. And you're there in the midst of it. So as we pray, and pray consistently, warm these hearts of ours, engage these minds of ours, shape these wills of ours, Father. Come here now to see Jesus and him only. Pray these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Phil Gunter is a pastor out west, and as he was examining in his devotions, Galatians chapter 3, his mind went back to an experience that he had had with his family when the children were quite young. They went up to a restaurant, and they were looking forward to being able to sit down together for a meal. They were hungry. And you know how it is with small children. But as they were arriving on the scene, they saw these, song, these signs along the way, and they're very negative, restrictive signs. Phil, Phil writes, one said, do not back in. Another, restrooms are for customer use only. As he drove in a little further on a trash can, not for diaper disposal or auto trash. Local checks for amount of purchase only. Vanilla Frosties only dipped one size only. Please order by number. Pay up front before being served. And the last, observe all signs. What I love is that Phil said, you know, Gary, we were really getting turned off. I mean, we were hungry, incredibly hungry, but all this negativism. When all of a sudden my cell phone went off, I picked it up, and lo and behold, it was my brother. And he said, how would you like to come over for a meal? We've got the, we've got the table set. Bring the whole family. And he realized all of a sudden he could have paid a price and put up with all those negative restrictions when in reality, what he had been given and offered was something that was free, more nutritious for the entire family, with rich fellowship connected. That, in essence, is an illustration of now what we are looking at here in Galatians 3, 1 through 9. Because the Galatian people, for some reason, despite the fact that they had heard, and they had heard very clearly from Paul, that there is a meal planned for them, this tremendous gospel of grace. Nonetheless, they were beginning to embrace all the negative signs that were being put up regarding the gospel that they and themselves had reconstructed. And they were willing, in fact, to pay up front before being served, rather than putting their faith and trust in the one who came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So here we have a situation. Do you pay for the meal, or is the meal on God? That's the issue of the hour here. And so in verses 1 down through verse 9, what you and I are going to find as we now move into this third chapter is that it unpacks for us the beginning of what I will call six lines of reasoning that help us to better understand the significance of the gospel 
and the important core teaching that you and I are to be justified by faith in Christ alone and not by our human works. So let's dig in. Notice with me, verse 1 down through verse 5, and two significant considerations begin to move before us. Number one, once you consider with me our personal experience with the gospel. Our personal experience with the gospel. In verse 1, you and I are informed that Paul now, whose emotional level must be rising to the surface, is about to, in three significant words, put an exclamation point to them. You... Foolish Galatians. <clears throat> now, he loves these people. He spent time in Acts 13 and 14 sharing the gospel with these people. They'd come to saving faith in Christ. The very same word that's utilized here to describe them was used likewise to describe those disciples on the road to Emmaus, where in Luke chapter 24, Jesus Christ said to them, How foolish, same word you are, And how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Brilliantly now. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. He used the old to be able to inform the new. And so now here is Paul and he's following in the footsteps of his Jesus. And just as Jesus challenged these disciples who had become, literally in the Greek language, dull of understanding the wording behind the idea of foolish, so now likewise, Paul is saying, I taught, I explained, I expounded, and for some odd reason, in this particular area, you are retreating from the essential, non-negotiable salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. And you're wanting to start to add your own circumcision and your own priorities to what has been taught here. You foolish, you dull of understanding, Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Underline that word bewitched. That word bewitched um, carries with it the idea in the Middle East of of the evil eye being cast upon a person. It was part of their mythology in that time period. Well, you know, what what happens here now is that Paul turns the tables, and after dealing with the idea of being bewitched, where the evil eye has, so to speak, come upon them, here's what he then says, before your very eyes. See what he's doing here? We might miss that if we didn't understand the significance of the word bewitched, evil eye. Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Now, there are two significant works that I want to draw out for us that are tied to our personal experience with the gospel. The first is the work of God the Son. God the Son. Because there in verse 1, you and I are informed, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. The word here that's used for portrayed uh, carries with it the idea of painting on a canvas or else establishing a placard visually in front of people so that they can understand what needs to be communicated in the realm of advertisement and so on. 
Now, what Paul is saying here is I used word pictures. I created a visual understanding through verbal teaching of Jesus Christ crucified. Now, when you and I find ourselves in situations where we are detouring from the God of grace, what we have to do is to allow that picture of Jesus Christ crucified to be so visually imprinted upon the canvas of our minds. Do you do that? Notice it's Jesus Christ crucified, not Jesus Christ the teacher, the great one though he was, or Jesus Christ a good example, because if he was merely a good example, well, he was an over-engineered product. He was perfect, and who can live up to that? Jesus Christ was perfect, and he lived the perfect life so that he could be the substitute for you and for me and die in our place. And so now what Paul wants them to do is to be able to visualize the crucified Christ in their daily experience of life itself. Steve Brown tells the story of a British soldier in the First World War who lost his heart in the battle and deserted. Well, trying to reach the coast for a boat to England that night, he writes, he ended up wandering in the pitch-black night, hopelessly lost. When the darkness, he came across what he thought was a signpost. And it was so dark that he began to climb the post so that he could read it. And as he reached the top of the pole, he struck a match to see and found himself looking squarely into the face of Jesus. For you see, he realized that rather than running up a signpost, he had climbed up a roadside crucifix. Brown goes on to explain this. Then he remembered the one who had died for him, who had endured, who had never turned back. The next morning, the soldier was back in the trenches. Feel like you're prone to want to run from the battlefield of life and beginning to develop your own battle plan rather than to embrace the grace plan of the gospel in its entirety and fullness? Or do you have loved ones who, in the midst of their own darkened travels, find themselves looking for a way out of the battle of life? What you need to do is to continuously pray to God that God will create a visual reminder of the verbal teachings they had received in years previous of Jesus Christ and him crucified and that he died in their place. There is no better means of getting someone back into the battle of life itself than Jesus And so there now, Paul is helping them to visualize what Jesus has done for them. And so you and I see the work of God the Son in verse 1. It is Jesus Christ that was clearly portrayed, portrayed as crucified, visually. But now there is a second work that he wants to draw out for you and me, and it's the work of God the Holy Spirit. You see that now in verse 2 down through verse 5. And in order to be able to develop this, well, what Paul does is that he begins to put together a series of questions that the Galatians are going to have to be able to answer. And they come in rapid-fire succession, don't they? In verse 2, I'd like to learn just one thing from you. 
Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law? Or by believing what you heard? Here it comes again. Are you so foolish? In other words, so slow of understanding. You missed it with regard to this second member of the Trinity, and now you're doing the same with the third member. You're, you're, you're moving into the darkness, leaving the battlefield. After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Did you notice that they began with the Spirit? Which is the case when you come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. You don't get one-third of the Trinity. You get the entirety and the Lordship of the Godhead in your own personal life and experience. And so we are talking believers here who began with the Spirit, as Paul points out. But he wants to know why they're so foolish. In other words, they're rejecting what they themselves have experienced through the Spirit. And then in verse 4, Have you suffered so much for nothing that really was for nothing? Well, he gets them to think. He gets them to pause. He gets them to reflect upon the whole fact that they are moving out of sheer, pure gospel grace into a form of legalism, which reminds me of a story of a man by the name of Jesse Irvin Ovenholzer, who the biographer tells us his pioneering family had moved west with others of like faith during the Civil War. They were known as the Dunkards, adherents to a tiny brethren movement that was committed to triune immersion three times forward into the water. Not once, not twice, had to be three times, and I assume you brought them up. And they believed that salvation of the soul depended upon the proper baptism of the body. Furthermore, women were required to wear bonnets and only bonnets, no hats, And men wore untrimmed beards. Boston Red Sox players. They won, you know. Well, almost without exception, the pastors in that conference shared and preached and practiced salvation by works. But Jesse, the biographer, informs us, embraced this tradition wholeheartedly when he became a pastor. I accepted it fully, he recalled, right down to the beards and the bonnets, I believe that the Bible was the very word of God, that Jesus was God the Son, Christ died on the cross for my sin, rose again from the grave, but I had added something to the finished work of Christ on the cross. I added. So salvation was, for me, not a free gift, and salvation was not by grace. Well, I found it easier to preach work salvation than to live it. So the biographer then goes on to inform us, he struggled in his spiritual life, never sure he was good enough, always fearing death. Is that of any of us here today? Yet he abhorred what he considered to be the cheap grace of revivalists, and then he stumbled upon the biography of D.L. Moody and began to read it and found that Moody had what Overholzer was looking for. Well, Moody's testimony alone didn't turn Jesse's life around. In the months that followed, he studied the Bible, Romans and Galatians in particular, that challenged his belief in salvation by works. Slowly the message penetrated his heart until one day when he was on a ladder pruning his fruit trees, he cried out, It must be so, I accept it, 
He got down from the ladder, rushed into the house to his wife, shouting, I'm saved. I'm saved. Jesse shared his newfound faith with others. And then he was put on trial in his denomination before his church leaders. He shared from the scriptures, Romans and Galatians. Now the leaders were divided. A second trial was called, after which he resigned from his church. A resolution, the biographer tells us, was crucial to his later decision to found and direct Child Evangelism Fellowship. Isn't that remarkable? Do you see what he went through to be able to get to the point of core gospel, pure gospel, sheer gospel, salvation by grace through faith and the finished work of Jesus Christ and Him alone? Well, Paul in verse 5 will then say, you've been given all this evidence. You've been able to visualize through argumentation the work of Jesus Christ. The work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But not only the work of God the Son, but work of God the Holy Spirit. So much so that in verse 5, does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? And your mind, my mind, of course, goes back to Acts chapter 13 and 14 where Paul had been ministering in Galatia. And he had performed miracles there. That's what he's referring to at this point. You can read that for yourself and, and put in right off to the side of verse 5, Acts 13, Acts 14. And notice very carefully what, what Paul was doing during those days. Well now, what you and I need to do as we share the gospel, as we embrace the gospel, as we teach the gospel, is that we have to get people to consider our personal experience with the gospel, how they heard it, is it distorted or is it accurate? We do so by considering the work of God the Son, and we do so by considering the work of God the Holy Spirit in 2 through 5. And once we've done that, we're prepared for the second line of reasoning, which comes out of verse 6 down through verse 9. We're going to put like this, second of all. The number two, we need to consider a scriptural example of the gospel. Scriptural example of the gospel. We're tying together personal experience with the gospel, and now a scriptural example of the gospel and in order to do that, we're going to put ourselves in a situation where we're going to connect the dots. There are going to be two significant connections I want to make with you now in the coming verses. The first is found in verses 6 and 7. Connect with me, verses 6 and 7, with Genesis 15, verse 4, down through verse 6. And as you do so, I want to begin reading here and get you thinking with me. And I've been, I've been awed by what Paul is doing. This is brilliant what he's done. Consider Abraham. Stop right there. Who did the false teachers, who did the Judaizers elevate in order to be able to make their argument? Moses. Moses. But in the sequence of time, who came first? Abraham or Moses? Abraham. Which means then we're about to see that grace preceded the law. And ironically, God was gracious enough to even provide the law to reveal to us that we're sinful by nature. But consider now what he's done here is that he's upped them. 
What he has done is saying, I know how significant Abraham is to you. You view yourselves as descendants of Abraham. So what he's doing now is that he's taking the argumentation of those who have appealed to Moses, even though they have twisted and reinterpreted Moses' teaching with regard to law, turning into a hypothetical aspect of salvation. And he's saying, we will go back in time behind Behind Moses, I'm going to appeal to Abraham. And notice now, he goes to say this. He believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when did Abraham get circumcised? Answer, Genesis 17. When was Abraham justified by faith? Answer, Genesis 15. Now, I know I've been a few years out of high school, but I still think Genesis, that the number 15 occurs before 17. Which means then that all these people have been arguing that circumcision was what needed to be added to Jesus Christ's work to be declared righteous need to look very carefully at the fact that their forefather Abraham did not need circumcision to be declared righteous. That he was able to be declared righteous by grace, through faith, in the promised one to come, and him alone. And so look now, look with me at this passage that appears on the screen from Genesis 15, verse 4 through 6. There are some words that are italicized intentionally. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Always, always, don't start with the religionist or the secularist. Start with the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir. What's he talking about here? Well, you see, Abram was beginning to slip in the direction of works when he had been promised the land of of Canaan, as soon as famine arrived, he decided to be prone to want to do it his way, and he headed off to Egypt. Works. Later, we find then that when he accepts the fact that God has promised that there is to be an heir, he comes with the idea, well, it can be Eleazar. He's one of the main servants in my extended clan. And God is saying, no, that's works. That's the we're thinking behind this phrase here. This man, Eliezer, will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. So he takes him outside. Time for some astronomy. He says, look up at the heavens, count the stars if you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. The word offspring there is the same word used for the word seed. Seed. It's the word that was given as a promise to Eve of a seed that one still to come. Now, if you look furthermore, what Paul will say here in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, 
but into your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. In other words, Abraham put his faith in Christ. But Christ has not yet appeared on the scene in time. What Abram has done is put his faith and trust in the promised one still to come. And that's how one was saved in the Old Testament. And so now in the Old Testament, they put their faith and trust in the one who is to come. You and I, subsequent to his resurrection and ascension, have put our faith and trust in the one who came. But it all centers, it all comes around Jesus. Jesus, who he is. what he's done. So let me tell you about the black monster from the lagoon in Minnesota. It has to do with ice fishing. The People I know in Wisconsin as well as Minnesota look forward to January and February ice fishing. Why they look forward to January and February, I don't know. But this comes out of Minnesota where there was an ice fishing story where evidently the fishing is good and the football is bad. (laughs) Sorry, James Gilliland. (laughs) Well, the man says, the fellow told me this story was in one of those shacks with with his son and his black Labrador dog jigging away when he snagged a big 10-plus pound fish and hauled it from the hole. The hook came out and the fish was wiggling around on the floor when it got back to the hole and it looked like it was going to escape. The Labrador, excited by the commotion, jumped on the fish just as it seemed to be going through the hole and disappeared through the hole with the fish in its jaws. The dog's owner and his son were distraught by this incident as the dog was a family favorite. And he wondered what he was going to tell his family when he got back. When just then he heard a commotion from a nearby shack, looking out saw three fellows bursting through the door of their shack and hightailing it across the ice. It seemed that the dog, without losing the fish in its jaws, had swam into their hole, peered unexpectedly through their hole. And possibly, in a blur of alcohol-fueled fright, they thought that they had been attacked by the black monster from the lagoon. (laughs) And so they decided to exit their stand, chased by dog and fish together. And I saw that, and I thought about Abraham at this point, you see. Abraham. Because they had to go out on the ice, didn't they? And they had to go out there to... To fish. But what sustains them in January and February is not their faith, but the ice. It's better to have a little faith in the right object than a lot of faith in the wrong object. You're not going to get me to go walking on water in July. It doesn't work. Ask Peter. But what we find here is this. We are living in a culture that does not understand that the value of your faith is determined by the object of your faith. They had to put their faith 
in enough ice that could sustain them in order to drill their holes. And so now, the critical issue you and I have to ask ourselves is not necessarily when it comes to the gospel, how much faith do I have? But rather to start with, in whom have I placed my faith? Once I have determined in whom I place my faith, then I can expand the amount of faith I need to have. But I've got to start with understanding what and who should be the object of my faith. And Paul is saying, Christ crucified. The value of our faith is determined by the object of our faith. We are justified by grace through faith in Christ alone. Consider Abraham, he said, not Moses at this point, for the sake of argument. He believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness because God had revealed to him with regard to the offspring, the seed that had first been promised to Eve and on through each generation leading to Jesus Christ himself. Understand then that those who are children of Abraham, those who believe, are children of Abraham. Even if you're a Gentile, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you're a child of Abraham. So now you've made one connection. You've connected verses 6 and 7 with Genesis 15, 14 through 16 and understood then that justification comes by Grace through faith in Christ alone, because that was Abraham's experience as well. Here's your second connection. Notice with me now, very clearly, connect verses 8 and 9 with Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. That's what Paul does here, where he connects and says, The Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. And he did that way back in Genesis and announced, and you'll want to underline this, mock this, and never forget this, he announced the gospel in advance to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Well, he did, but he announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. You've got the gospel there right in your Old Testament when he goes on to say this, all nations will be blessed through you. So now that appears on the screen at this point, Genesis 12, verse 3, where God then said this, I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And Paul utilizes the word blessed here, ties it to Abraham when he was justified by faith. And he's saying the blessed one is the one who's been justified by faith in Christ. Christ alone. So he summarizes in verse 9. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now what you've done is put together two significant lines of reasoning of what the core gospel is all about. Your personal experience with the crucified Christ. A scriptural example of the gospel is Abraham had to relate to the crucified Christ. So the next time you go into a restaurant and you see a lot of negative signs, keep your cell phone on. There may be a free meal waiting for you. And in this negative, critical world, 
where we are being barraged with false advertisement pertaining to God. Keep listening to the Word of God. The free gospel is ready and available to you. Let's stand together. Praising you, thanking you now, Father. We want to work verse by verse through these verses to understand very clearly the work that you have done through Jesus Christ on the cross. Can't add to it. Can't subtract from it. We embrace it as it is. So I thank you now. I thank you, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, triune God, for the grace that is sufficient to secure our salvation and meet us at our point of need. For this we give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.